Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. This is an RNZ podcast. Piki mai kake mai and welcome to Our Changing World. Call Alison Balance aho. Later on in the show, we'll hear about the chemical element terbium. But first up, lakes. The Cawthron Institute and GNS Science are leading a very large research project called Lakes 380, Our Lakes Health, Past, Present and Future. It's the largest scientific study ever undertaken of New Zealand lakes, and we'll be hearing about the project over two weeks. Today, I'm off to the Cawthron Institute in Nelson to meet Susie Wood. So in New Zealand we've got 3,800 lakes, and from a scientific perspective, we know something about less than 2% of those. So there's only about 150 lakes in New Zealand that are regularly monitored by regional councils or um, other lake management groups. And even of those lakes, it's really only the ones that are highly used for recreational activities or important for other reasons that are monitored. And those monitoring programs have generally only been running for 10 or 20 years. And so, although we might know something about the current health of the lake, we don't know anything about what those lakes were once like before humans arrived in New Zealand. So if we're thinking about restoration of lakes or prioritising lakes for protection without understanding what those lakes were once like, it's really, really hard to develop those kind of plans. So yeah, this project, our ambition is to sample 380 lakes in New Zealand, so that's 10% of our lakes. One of the main things we're doing is taking sediment cores So year by year, sediment is laid down into a lake. And so it's like a storybook going back in time when we take that sediment core. We take the sediment core and we split it in half and and take different layers and use a range of techniques to look at each of those layers. So one of the things we do is use a technique to look at how old each of those layers are. And one of the big things that we do here at Cawthron is using our DNA techniques so we can understand what the biological communities of those lakes were like and how they've changed and why they've changed. And the DNA, I guess, is a recent advancement in this field because traditionally we've only been able to look at organisms which leave a fossil or leave a hard shell or body parts in the sediment cores. But now with the, you know, the DNA revolution, we can now look at a whole suite of new organisms. So one of the things we've been doing recently is working on bacteria, which are wonderful indicators of, of many different things, and we can see yeah, very interesting changes in, in bacterial communities down the core. Now you're just back from a field trip? Yeah, so we're well into our field sampling campaign now, so we've sampled over 80 lakes. We're just back from Northland, so we've just sampled New Zealand's most northern lake, Waitihora, which is right up in Spirits Bay in Northland. Fantastic area up there, some beautiful June lakes. June lakes are a real unique thing in Northland, aren't they? Yeah, so there's over 400 June lakes 
in Northland, and I think it's one of the largest clusters of dune lakes anywhere left in the world. And we saw some, you know, really nice examples of very pristine dune lakes. But they are a system, but just because of their, you know, their proximity to the coastline, usually they're on quite flat, um, rolling land. There's lots of interest in it. They're using it for farmland and things, so they are really susceptible to um, degradation. Yeah, the June lakes I remember seeing years ago were in the middle of pine plantations. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's a lot of pine plantations up there as well. So, yeah, I mean, there's different parts to this project, and one of the ones, I guess, that's of interest, particularly up there, is looking at how different land uses affect lakes. So it's one of the things that we have done is select lakes which are surrounded by high levels of pasture and others which are surrounded by entirely by forestry, and just looking at how the historic changes in that land use have um, affected the current health of them. Just thinking sizes of lakes, obviously if you, at the big end we've got Lake Taupo. Mm-hmm. How small can you get away with being and still be <laughs> called a lake? <laughs> yeah, it's a very hotly debated topic amongst our team. So scientifically we define a lake as greater than one hectare. To some degree we've used that definition, but um, there are other smaller lakes that are very culturally significant. And you know, one of the really important goals of Lakes 380 is that we also recognise how important these lakes are to Māori and we go out and consult and have some you know, really in-depth discussions with them before we actually will ever, ever sample a lake. And one of the most rewarding things about this project has been working with the local iwi and finding out which are the, the lakes that have you know, got interesting stories related to them. And so often you know, we have sampled lakes that are much smaller than that and they've been traditional sources of mahinga kai or you know, really significant for other reasons and yeah ideally deeper than one 1.5 meters but yeah we'll deviate when we need to. (laughs) So when you go out and sample a lake what's the process what are the things you're actually sampling? We take out two boats there's one that takes goes out and takes the sediment core so there's a team of three or four on that boat and they're hammering down a sediment core just manually down so it's a a plastic tube a bit like a drain pipe we try and go down uh, anywhere up to two meters into the lake. Which sounds easy but isn't always so easy. <laughs> yeah, often it's not so hard to get it down but it can be extremely hard to, to get that back out. And we're trying to capture a thousand years of lake history. That takes us back to pre-human, so that's the aim. And then there's another boat that goes out and is more focused on some of the current day water quality sampling and also current day sort of biodiversity sampling. So we mostly using environmental DNA to look at what communities are in the lake at the moment and we also look at surface sediment so one of the things in lakes is that surface sediment traps nutrients and under certain conditions in that lake those nutrients can be re-released out into the water and this is it's really important to understand this from a lake restoration perspective so we can do all of the sort of revegetation of the catchment trying to stop nutrients from entering the lake but there's this source of nutrients that are trapped in the lake that can be remobilised or re-released into the lake water and so yeah we just want to in all of these lakes get a better understanding of that and some of the processes around that so that when we're thinking about how we restore lakes we also consider what happens within the lake not just what's happening with around the lake. So you've just been working in Northland but you have also been working in Fiordland? We have yeah so we spent five weeks down based at Tiana where we sampled about 40 lakes down there. Out of how many in Fiordland? Oh, so there's something like eight or 900 lakes uh, just in Fiordland National Park. So yeah, it's one of our most important places in New Zealand for lakes, and we know next to nothing about many of those lakes. So 
really there's not even information on the water quality or what organisms live in there. So yeah, it's really exciting to start to see that data come in because we're starting to see some new organisms identified and yeah, really understand a bit more about these really pristine, wonderful systems. So they've got some quite big lakes down there, the obvious ones like Kayana and Manapauri, but there's lots of little ones that are even up in the alpine and subalpine zone, aren't there? Yeah, yep, so we have a huge number of lakes, alpine lakes, so there's about 600 alpine lakes in New Zealand that are above treeline. So we sampled quite a lot of those, and logistically a real a challenge, so we've taken two helicopter loads of gear to get into these lakes. We have inflatable boats just to, to get the gear in the helicopter, so when we arrive at a lake... We have something like a tonne of gear. Yeah, to make it sort of cost-effective, we're trying to sample two lakes a day. So we start very early and we're still going at 8 or 9 o'clock at night. Uh, once we get back to the, our base, there's a lot of sample processing to be done as well. But yeah, just a, it was just a huge privilege to get to these places, which um, you know, I guess are extremely hard to, to get to, and yeah, just see what a pristine, untouched lake looks like and... So what does one look like? What was your favourite lake and what did it look like? <laughs> oh, it's always hard to pick a favourite lake. Yeah, one of them was Lake Norma, which was a fantastic lake um, just sitting on treeline. I had a, a wonderful 50-metre waterfall into it and we arrived and it just felt like a, a paradise nestled down in this valley. And, yeah, wonderful flowering native um, aquatic plants or macrophytes in it and, yeah, clear water and, um, yeah, beautiful place to spend the afternoon sampling. Susie and her team are two years into what will be a five-year project. After just their first year of fieldwork, they already have more than 6,000 samples. The sediment cores go to GNS Science in Lower Hutt, and we'll visit there and find out more about that side of the process in the next episode of Our Changing World. From GNS Small samples from the cores are sent to the Cawthorn Institute team, which is analysing eDNA samples. To show me how this is done, Susie takes me to the molecular lab, starting in its coldest corner. So we're in the minus 20 freezer, so we won't, won't stay here too long, but these are some samples from Lake Spectacle, which is a, a little dune lake up in the Auckland region. And we've sampled this at a variety of depths. So each of these little scoops here has been used to take about five grams of sediment. And we do that um, using very sterile techniques. And they get put into these little plastic sterile bags and sent down to here. So this one's from a depth of 40 centimetres down into the core. And we'll take a little subsample of that and um, use a, a DNA extraction kit and a robot, which we're going to go and have a look at to extract those. Cool. Right, that's great. It's very cold in here. <laughs> Ooh, very cold. Yeah, it's one of my least favourite places. <laughs> so why are you keeping your samples at minus 20? So minus 20 keeps the DNA stable. So yeah, they, they come out of the lake and they're very cold and dark. And we try and split the cores and subsample them as quickly as possible. And lots of samples for the analysis that we do can be kept at 4 degrees. But for DNA, just because it gets broken down by bacteria and light, we like to keep it at minus 20. Cool, we'll show you the little robot that we use. So the, the robot means that it saves a whole lot of manual labour. It does, yeah. Yep, this one here extracts DNA from 12 samples at once. So essentially we load the little sediment samples that we take into a tube and we put it into this, this machine here, which we're 
just opening up and it's got an arm here that comes along and it can add the different reagents into each of the tubes and a little centrifuge to spin the samples. Um, so everything happens in here within about one hour and we get our, our DNA, our purified DNA, out, which is then ready to use to target our um, genes of interest. So that's yeah, really speeding up the process for us. So we have, when we have a sediment core, we're typically analysing uh, around about 30 or 40 samples from it, so you times that by a few hundred and the, the sample numbers get large quite quickly. So adding things like the robots in really will help us process them. So you said you were collecting cores that went down to two metres. So do you find DNA all the way down those cores? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. We've got some really nice data um, for about 1,500 years ago where we can see really nice bacterial communities. And yeah, you can see really interesting things, in particular targeting some of the cyanobacteria or the species that form algal blooms um, and yeah looking at how the species of different species have changed and what some of the causes of those algal blooms might be. So we've got a really nice case study uh, in the wire wrapper. There's a little lake called Lake Ponui. just sits down um, right at the base or very close to the base of Lake Wairapa and it's nestled in a little basin that's got 95% of its catchment is in native vegetation. But in the last five to ten years, it started to experience really severe cyanobacterial blooms. And so it's a good example of how we can use these techniques to answer questions about why there's been these, these recent changes in the lake. So the question there is, how come the cyanobacterial bloom is forming despite any land use change? So typically cyanobacterial blooms are caused by an increase in nutrients, which is related to land use intensification. So um, by going down the sediment core, we were able to see where the typical bloom-forming cyanobacteria arrived in the lake and just sort of track how they increased in abundance. And the thing that we noticed was that really from about 1870 onwards, we started to see these species in the lake. And through using our eDNA, we were able to identify some particular bacteria in there that are potentially associated with invasive or non-native fish. And we know around about that time in New Zealand there was the Acclimatisation Society which introduced um, a variety of fish to our streams and our, our lakes. And in Ponui it was um, trout and probably most devastatingly European perch. So European perch um, change our food webs in our lakes. And um, yeah, I think in this lake it's you know, had a really dramatic effect of that and, and set this lake off on a, a completely new trajectory. And we can look at the bacterial communities and see the arrival or how those have changed. And there's species there now which we associate with increased in organic material in the lake. And So, yeah, that kind of information, I think, is super helpful when we want to think about restoration of a lake. There's a lot of different techniques you could use, but probably if those fish remain in those lakes, then you would never have absolute success at restoring that lake, perhaps back to what it was once like. So when you look back through these cores, can you actually tell whether there were blooms happening or do you just know that bloom-forming cyanobacteria were present in the lake at a particular point in time? So it depends. There's a, a couple of different molecular techniques or DNA-based techniques that we use. One of them which looks at the entire community is, I guess, more qualitative, so we can just see which species arrive and you know whether there's a lot of them, some of them, not very many of them. But over here on my right is a, another machine, which we call a droplet digital PCR, um, and this allows us to be very quantitative when we want to look for a specific organism. So we've also used this most recently in the sediment cores to target some of the bloom-forming cyanobacteria species. 
this essentially does 20,000 PCR reactions in one tube. So it's an incredibly neat piece of machinery. Yeah, and it counts each of these little oil droplets in this tube which have the individual PCRs and so we can use that to very quantitatively look at the change in abundance of specific organisms. And so that we know in, in the lakes at least that we've used this technique on, there really has been an increase in the abundance of, of these bloom-forming species. Were they there before, though? Um, most of the lakes that we've looked at so far, they weren't there. They were, they've always been cyanobacteria, or, but there's a, a you know, really dramatic species shift. Yeah, so far it's been associated with about the time of introduced species, so introduced fish, or massive changes in land use around the lake. And other than since humans arrived, obviously we've created lots of change. Before we came along, were you seeing lots of change in the lakes? Were the communities changing a lot over time, or were they quite stable for long periods of time? Yeah, um, good question. So it depends a little bit on the on the lake. So yeah, one of the systems that we've been working on is Lake Puringa, which is down near Haas, down in the southwest of New Zealand, and that lake sits right on the Alpine Fault. And so within the last thousand years, there's been four uh, magnitude eight or greater earthquakes on the Alpine Fault. And every time we have a, um, a large earthquake, um, we get a huge input of, of sediment from the catchment into that lake. And there's a period of the lake which it's very, the lake's very turbid and it undergoes a lot of changes. And so using our molecular techniques, looking at bacterial communities, we've been able to look at the communities before each of these earthquakes and then during that period of dramatic change and then once the lake is stabilised again. And we've seen some really interesting shifts and, you know, contrary to what we thought, we thought that the bacterial community would undergo some changes but then reset itself back to what it was like pre-earthquake. But that's not what's happening. We're actually seeing really dramatic shifts in the bacterial communities. So some really interesting questions that we hope to be able to answer about yeah, natural disturbance and its impact on lake e- ecosystems. And now that we've done bacteria, we'll go higher up the, the trophic levels and start to look at things like um, some of the algal species and aquatic plants and hopefully things like fish populations as well. And then line up all those patterns next to each other and see how similar or different they are. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And this molecular work that we do, it's incredibly data-rich. So the samples go from the, the PCR here, and there's a couple of other rooms where we, we visualise them on a um, agro's gel to ensure that the PCR reaction has been successful, and they get cleaned up and actually sent to um, Auckland University where they go through something we call high-throughput sequencing, which essentially generates millions and millions of sequences from these samples yeah, and there's a whole sort of bioinformatics and computer process after that, and essentially we end up with a list of hundreds and thousands of species that live in those samples. So it's yeah, it's just a different way, I guess, of doing what traditionally might have been done under the under the microscope. But in this project, at least, it's allowing us to look at organisms that are not preserved um, or don't leave a, a shell or a part of their body in the sediment core. So, in terms of bacteria, are you coming across species that you have no idea what they are? Yeah, so it was interesting. I was just chatting to um, one of our scientists working on that this morning. So from some of the samplings that we've got from Fiordland, um, probably about 25% of them would be things that have never been seen before or that cannot be identified at least down to a genera or species level. Yeah, which I think is probably not, when you think about it, it's not that unexpected in that we've never done much work on our lakes, particularly in those environments. So what we're hoping to do with the bacteria as well is looking 
you know, just at the diversity and what we've got and how that relates to different types of lakes is develop uh, a method by picking out key indicator species which might allow regional councils to be able to look at their lake health. So bacteria are wonderful indicators of disturbance or enrichment. And at the moment when you want to understand something about your lake, you actually, if you were just taking water samples, you have to take water samples sort of ideally monthly or maybe every two months for three years before you get a good indication of the, um, the water quality, and that's because things vary so much seasonally. So we're hoping that perhaps by taking just a surface sediment sample, which is an integration of probably five to ten years of what's happened in that lake, and looking at the bacterial community, we might be able to develop a method that you know you could say, well, this lake is this healthy or this unhealthy. So yeah, that's one of the aims of that part of the work. Thanks, Susie. That was Susie Wood from the Cawthorn Institute talking about the eDNA side of the Lakes 380 project. This is part one of a two-part series, and next week we'll visit GNS to hear more about the sediment cores themselves and what the geologists are doing with them. Kei te whakaronga mai koe ki tō tātou au hurihuri, hei hōtaka e pāna ki te pūtaio, te taio, me te kaupapa o te ora. I'm Alison Balance, and you're with Our Changing World on RNZ. Now... It's time to get our feet wet in the wonderful chemical world of the Elemental Podcast. Here's Alan Blackman from Auckland University of Technology with Terbium. Terbium was named after Itterby, which is spelt Y-T-T-E-R-B-Y, a chemically prolific small village in Sweden, after which no fewer than four elements, terbium, erbium, yttrium and ytterbium, were also named. Now, I'm getting the hang of this, so this must make it a lanthanoid, <laughs> and this usually means a torturous isolation procedure. Oh, Am I correct? yes, indeed. Correct on both counts. <laughs> oh, yes, I've learnt something. Well done. Well done. So, vital statistics. So, the elemental symbol TB and the atomic number 65. So, as you correctly state, that puts it pretty much slap bang in the middle-ish of the lanthanoids. Here we go. Torturous it is. The discovery date of 1843 for terbium. But, of course, uh, nothing was as simple as that. The actual discovery process kicked off all the way back in 1787 when a black mineral was found near that little Swedish village of Itterby. And so they originally called this mineral Itterbite, and then they renamed it to Gadolinite, after Johann Gadolin of Gadolinium fame. And then he, <laughs> Gadolin, called this mineral Itria, and in 1843, Carl Mosander, now we've met him before as well, he was of didymium fame, oh, if we can gracious. recall that. <laughs> he managed to separate this yttria into three mineral components, each of which he proposed contained a new element. Now, due to a slight administrative muck-up, he called one of these <laughs> components erbia, and that was shown to contain terbium. And, yes, you guessed it, one of the other samples he called Terbia, and it contained erbium. So, quite simply, what they did was to change the names of the mineral components. <laughs> I don't know, dear listeners, if you're as confused as I am, then you're extremely <laughs> confused. But, anyway, that's one of the so-called rare earth elements. How rare? 
Yeah, this whole rare earth thing, it's a bit of a misnomer. None of the rare earths are really rare. Terbium's not a common element necessarily, but there's the same amount of it roughly in the earth's crust as both bromine and iodine, and um, there's twice as much terbium in the earth's crust as there is silver, so that sort of gives you some idea. Now the problem with it is that even though it's not overly unabundant, for want of a worse word, it's quite widely dispersed usually and hard to find. That, in fact, makes a recent discovery off Minamitori Island in Japan really important. So this is an offshore deposit, and it's so big that uh, a report of its discovery published in Nature magazine last year reckoned that there's enough yttrium to meet the global demand for 780 years, enough dysprosium for 730 years, enough europium for 620 years, and enough terbium for 420 years. It is an offshore deposit, so mining is going to be challenging, so don't hold your breath. (laughs) So, on the chemical side, being a lanthanoid, it forms compounds with the metal in the 3-plus oxidation state, and we've talked about this before on earlier episodes. But there's been a very recent report, in fact earlier this year, of a terbium complex having terbium in a 4-plus oxidation state. And that's extremely unusual for a lanthanoid, as the only other real example of a 4-plus lanthanoid is cerium. So... Is that chemically very exciting? Yeah, it kind of is. It's kind of cool. It means that people are going to go and study the rest of the lanthanoids and see if they can do this with them as well. So, yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool. Sweet. (laughs) My usual self-interested question. A, is it useful? In fact, so there's two questions. A, is it useful? (laughs) And B, day-to-day, am I likely to come across it? Mm, yeah, good questions. Um, there's not a huge number of uses for terbium and its complexes, if I'm going to be brutally honest. But one of the most interesting is a thing called terphenol D. And we mentioned this all the way back in the dysprosium episode. And uh, this material has got the approximate chemical formula TB.3, DY.7, FE2. Is that common to have decimal places? You can have decimal places in chemical formula, yes, yes. Oh, I don't uh, know that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> anyway, what happen. does this bestow <laughs> upon this compound? Well, this particular compound is magnetostrictive, and what that means is that it changes shape in the presence of a magnetic field, which is really kind of cool when you think about it. And so this was put to... I hesitate to say good use, but certainly put to use back in the early 2000s, where they created nifty little devices that, when you stuck them on a smooth surface, would turn said surface, like a window or a bathtub or a bench top, etc., into an audio speaker, of all things. And that was using this particular Turfinol D material. And so these little devices were released in the early 2000s, but unfortunately they don't appear to have taken off. I think they sound really kind of cool. They sound um, great. You could, I know. I'm just going to turn my bench into a speaker. Yeah, yeah. Well, do, do, Google it all. You'll, you'll, you'll find them floating around somewhere, I'm sure. But uh, most uses of terbium, I guess, are associated with its ability to phosphoresce green. So if you use the correct wavelength of energy to excite the atoms, terbium in the plus three state radiates a luminous green colour that is so intense it can be seen with the naked eye. So this bright colour makes terbium compounds particularly useful as colour phosphors in lighting applications. So in other words, in fluorescent lamps, uh, where it is a lovely yellow colour. And terbium salts that phosphoresce with uh, that intense green colour 
were used to provide the green in the old RGB colour TVs. And the R and the B were provided by europium compounds. That's that idea that you can make any colour from red or green or blue. Indeed, Mm. yes, yes. And remember we talked about europium and how they used the element europium as a security feature in the euro banknotes? I do remember that. Uh So along with europium, apparently terbium phosphors are also used as uh, security inks in the euro notes and they apparently phosphorescent blue colour. Hmm. (laughs) Curiouser and curiouser. Final interesting fact. Okay, so some terbium compounds display an unusual phenomenon known as triboluminescence. So light gets emitted when one of these crystalline solid terbium compounds is fractured. So a fracture in the crystalline lattice, for example, will result in the emission of bright green light. And by the way, you can see examples of triboluminescence online, made, uh, for example, by rubbing two quartz pebbles against each other in the dark. And no terbium, obviously, is involved uh, in this particular case, but it is kind of cool. Thanks, Alan. And that is cool. That was Alan Blackman from the Elemental podcast, which you can find on the Our Changing World webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. You'll find the Lakes 380 story there as well. Don't forget, we're a podcast available on your favourite podcast app. And you can find us and many other great RNZ podcasts under the podcast tab on rnz.co.nz. We're on Twitter and Facebook as RNZ Science. Thanks for your company. But until next time, it's good night from me, Alison Balance. Kia pai topo. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.